Hello and welcome again to the Grattan Podcast Channel. I'm Paul Austin, the editor at Grattan Institute. And today we're talking about something that affects or will affect the lives of almost all of us, retirement incomes. We'll be looking at pensions, superannuation and all the other things that will make up our income when we reach that hopefully happy stage of life where we pull back from paid work. To discuss these issues, I'm joined by not one but two Grattan gurus. First, the director of our Household Finances Program, Brendan Coates. Hello, Brendan. Hi, Paul. And second, Grattan Associate Jonathan Nolan. Jonathan, welcome to you. Great to be here. Brendan and Jonathan have just sent a detailed submission to the Federal Government's Retirement Incomes Review. You can read that document on our website, and I'll come to some of the specifics soon. But first, Brendan, I'm intrigued. Why has the government seen the need to commission a review of retirement incomes? Well, Paul, the review actually came from a recommendation from the Productivity Commission when it looked at superannuation fees and costs and recommended as part of its um, its final report there that we should consider the retirement income system as a whole and particularly do that before compulsory super goes to 12%, which is an issue I'm sure we'll talk about later. Uh, so Treasurer Josh Frydenberg announced the review in the first half of uh, last year. Um, it's now underway and it's due to report by the end of June. Um, and the reason why I think this review is really important is retirement incomes is a very big, enormously costly, enormously complex uh, enterprise. And there hasn't been a wholesale review of, of the system for a good 30 years. We had the Henry Tax Review 10 years ago that looked at some of these questions. But we haven't really looked at how well the system is doing, how whether it's cost effective, whether it's delivering adequate incomes to all Australians for a very long time. And given the kind of things that you have with retirement incomes policy, where it affects people's lives out of the course of 30, 40, 50 years, it's really important to think about how the system works together and whether those policy settings that we've got in place are actually the right ones for the long term. You've given your submission the title Balancing Act. What's, what's the Balancing Act in retirement incomes, Brendan? Well, I think what we're really trying to get at here is there is a series of trade-offs. So retirement incomes are not costless. So either people have lower living standards while they're working if they save more, or governments give up tax revenue for superannuation tax breaks, or taxpayers pay more for pensions. And at the art of retirement incomes policy is really trying to balance these trade-offs and use the different parts of the system in order to best deliver adequate retirement incomes to all Australians, essentially at the least cost we can. Okay, so adequate retirement income sounds like a pretty good aim, but what else should be the objectives of a quality, comprehensive retirement incomes system? Well, just on adequacy first, it's worth being clear that there's really two objectives. There's the question about whether people are in poverty, and obviously we should be trying to avoid that. So if you don't have a lot of money, uh, you don't have a lot of attachment to the workforce throughout your working life. Uh, we, we want to make sure that you don't have any private savings that you don't end up in poverty. We also want to make sure that Australians are sustaining the same kind of living standard in retirement as what they had beforehand. So that's, they're the two conceptions of adequacy. Then you've got the degree to which the system is seen and in fact is equitable. So that comes to questions about the distribution of tax breaks, how fair is it that are certain amounts of money given to some people in pension versus others. 
Um, and then the questions around whether the system is sustainable. So how resilient is the system to various sort of changes that are going to take place in Australia over the course of the next 30 to 40 years? The big one is obviously population ageing, but there could be others. You know, could you have another global financial crisis? You know, we're worried about things like coronavirus. You know, how does that play out? And so is the system resilient to those kind of shocks and those kind of changes that we can anticipate? Housing's another one that we'll talk about over the course of the next 20, 30 years. Fewer Australians may own their own homes. Is the system resilient? Or is it going to achieve its objectives given these kinds of changes take place? And you identify four pillars of the system. A lot of people talk about three. You identify four. What are they? I think in short, the pillars are one, the age pension, or really the you can probably think of it more broadly as the income support system. So it's there to help those that don't have a lot else to make sure that they have a, an adequate retirement income, that they are comfortable, that they're not living in poverty. Uh, rent assistance certainly for renters is a part of that. But I think we should also think about other parts of the income support system, uh, say new start and disability support pension, effectively play that role for people who retire early as well. Then you've got uh, the, the review talks about super, compulsory superannuation as the second pillar, um, and we certainly would agree with that. So super itself forces people to save for retirement, overcoming the kinds of behavioural biases that people don't look far into the future. They don't they discount the future a lot. They may also think that look, I don't need the I don't need to save because the pension will be there. So there's a bit of moral hazard, and so compulsory super helps people to save enough to have a school living stand in retirement as beforehand. Then the review talks about a third pillar, which they just call voluntary savings in general, which we would distinguish between voluntary private savings, excluding the home. Uh, so this is things like, you know, voluntary super contributions, other financial assets, investment property. You know, people are saving via these vehicles. It's all voluntary. So no one's being compelled to do it, but it certainly gives you a higher living standard in retirement. And some of these things are taxed rather concessionally, certainly super. And then you've got home ownership, which we really distinguish from the other parts of the retirement income system because it's one very large. It tends to be the largest pillar. Uh, two, it tends to be something that most Australians have, even though it's voluntary. So home ownership rates amongst older Australians, typically north of 80%. Um, and it tends to be taxed very concessionally and treated in a very different way in things like the pension means tests and other savings. So we think it's worth thinking about that as a separate pillar because the dynamics of how that's going to change are really going to matter to whether the system's achieving its objectives in the long term. Okay, but can I go to those first two briefly, that is pensions and superannuation. Am I right that the long-term goal is or should be to replace the pension with superannuation? Well, I think one of the objectives of super is that it's certainly by forcing people to save more and the fact we have a means-tested pension, so you know, if you have a lot of assets, you don't get a lot of pension or you may not get any at all, means that as you have more compulsory super, you'll be spending less money on pensions. Uh, that's certainly an objective that's floated around at various times since the introduction of super, although it is contested sometimes as to the degree to which it is an actual explicit objective of the system. We don't think it's something that you should be seeking to achieve it of its own ends. So the pension obviously is there for low-income Australians to have an adequate retirement income, but it plays a bigger role than that. It actually helps middle-income Australians to to have enough in retirement. So even for a, a middle-income earner, it's probably half their income in future. And it provides really important benefits in terms of insurance against longevity risk, the risk that you might outlive your savings, where the returns are low. So if you have a global financial crisis, you might have less super, but you get more pension. So it plays a really important role in insuring retirees, even middle and a lot sometimes high-income earners against those kind of risks. 
we would say don't increase super to the point where it replaces the age pension as well because it would force Australians to save for a higher living standard in retirement than what you're going than what you have beforehand because the pension's going to exist it's going to have some means test a taper rate that's not going to be too aggressive um, that inevitably means middle income earners are going to rely on the pension if you make them save so much to replace that you're essentially making most Australians save far too much Jonathan can I bring you in here Brendan identifies perhaps the most fundamental aim of a retirement income system is to keep people out of poverty. If that's the aim, we're failing at the moment, aren't we? Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, So the max rate of the age pension for a couple who own their own home right now is $36,000. And at that rate, a pensioner couple is sitting right at the poverty line. Sometimes they're above it, sometimes they're below it. The difference between pensioners who own their own home and the rest of Australians, though, is that they're freed from the burden of having to pay rent or the mortgage every month. So when you take um, the cost of housing into account, rates of old age poverty in Australia are very low. So less than 10% of pensioners are in poverty after housing. And many people who are in poverty after housing are uh, when you count their income, have significant wealth that they're choosing not to spend. So the pension is a safety net for all retirees and so it can be very close to the poverty line. But the important thing about the pension is that it protects all retirees from the types of severe poverty that working age people can experience because it's a floor that you can't go below. Um, And that's why when we ask retirees how they're faring, they tend to say they're more financially comfortable than young people. So if you ask retirees, did you have to um, use charity in an emergency recently or did you have to pay a bill late or pawn some of your possessions, working age people are much more likely to say that they've been in a high-stress situation like that. And, And when you ask about their general financial comfort, again, working age people tend to be less comfortable than people who have reached retirement. So, Brendan, this comes to a pretty important definitional question, which is exactly how should we measure adequacy in retirement? How do we know when we've got enough? Well, I think it goes to the core objectives of the system. So we think of what is an adequate retirement, it's two things, not being in poverty, which is what Jonathan's talked about, and replacing your living standard that you had pre-retirement. Now, the term living standard there you know, sounds innocuous, but it's kind of, it actually has a specific meaning because we're not saying you need as much money in retirement as what you had beforehand uh, for a couple of reasons, typically because your typical retiree will get to retirement and they'll own their own home. Uh, they'll get to retirement and they'll spend less on on things like eating out and spend more and spend more of their time cooking for themselves. Uh, they're no longer looking after kids or rates covering the costs of raising children. Um, And there's typically a bunch of work-related expenses that disappear. So typically to be as well off, to have the same, you know, what economists would call consumption in retirement as what you have beforehand, you need less than 100% of the income that you had. And the number that gets bandied around, uh, certainly in the the international literature, is about 70%. So, you know, if you have 70% of what you had beforehand, um, then you're probably going to be okay. You're probably going to have as good a living standard beforehand in retirement as what you had beforehand. Although it's worth pointing out that there's actually not a lot of science around that number itself. So certainly in the work that we've done, looking at how much retirees spend on housing. So if you're a renter, 
you're spending about 30 odd percent of your 33% of your income on housing on average. If you're a homeowner, you spend about 5%. You know, there's the bill, there's still insurance, there's still council rates, there's a bit of maintenance. So that alone would suggest that if you're a homeowner, you might need a number of 70% as soon as you take into account the fact that, you know, you're no longer covering the cost of kids, you're no longer having to eat out as much or choosing to eat out as much. Um, you're no longer got work-related expenses. The number, in fact, may be lower than 70. Um, but we've certainly used 70 in our own work. So if we uh, if we hone in on 70% for the general population, what about though that minority but growing minority who are renting when they're in retirement? So here we're probably thinking of a number of between 90 and 100%. Now, that's because housing is typically about somewhere between 25 and 30% of your housing costs of your overall income, sorry. Um, and that's the difference between homeowners and renters. Now, that kind of approach, housing's tricky because housing's very, the cost of housing varies a lot across Australia. So, you know, do you, would you need more to sustain the same living standard in Melbourne and Sydney than what you would, you know, in Wagga or in Sale or in Gundagai? The answer is yes. Um, the challenge, though, is that you kind of can't set different retirement income standards for all across Australia, certainly when you're not when you're doing this kind of exercise where the kind of tools that you're using to make sure people meet those adequacy standards are national. But a number of about 100% of your pre-retirement income is kind of what we're after. And it's worth pointing out, this is your pre-retirement post-tax income. So it's after taxation. But another, another question I think that's really important to ask here is as much as what the replacement rate is, is actually who it's for. Yeah. So the system is never going to perfectly deliver perfect replacement rates of pre-retirement income for everyone. Uh, you know, working life is too heterogeneous. People just have different experiences. Some people retire early. Some people retire late. People have time out of the workforce. The, cha- the So the objective here thinking back to the kind of tools that you're using to try to make sure that people have as good a living standing in retirement as beforehand is to think about probably the median worker up to maybe the average. So someone earning 50 to 70, 50th percentile of the earnings distribution up to about the 70th. The way the Henry Tax Review thought about this was it's the median full-time earner. That's what you should be aiming to replace 70% or a similar number of their pre-retirement earnings into retirement. And if you do that, you've done your job. Okay, so 70% for the typical worker and 100% for the typical renter in retirement. But there's another distinction. What, how do you account for the difference between singles and couples in retirement? So 70% of Australians start retirement as part of a couple, uh, but you're typically going to expect about half of your retirement years you'll be part of a couple and half you'll be a single either because your partner will pass away before you do, or you'll get divorced. So the right way to think about modeling retirement incomes is probably to take the average of the replacement rates you get for singles and for couples and say, that's probably what the average person's life is gonna look like. What we do is we model singles, um, but we are also cognizant of the fact that couples will probably have marginally lower replacement rates simply because when you get the age pension, uh, if you're a couple, you get one and a half times what a single gets. Therefore, your replacement rate as model will be a bit lower. But, you know, it'll be lower by a degree, maybe five, 10 percentage points. Um, and so the question is, you make a judgment based if singles are more than exceeding that, then couples are probably going to be exceeding that too. And how does your modelling take account of 
this very important distinction, which you've mentioned briefly, a heck of a lot of us have broken career paths and increasing numbers of us work only part-time these days. So the way the modelling works, which is something I think we've covered on the podcast before, but probably a while ago now. So the basic way the modelling works is it essentially estimates what your retirement, it looks at the distribution of incomes of Australians today across different ages and builds a model about what the future path of someone's earnings trajectory is going to look like over the course of their working life, starting from age 30 today. Now, when we do that, we're also accounting for the fact that distribution has part-time workers in it as well as full-time workers. So you tend to have part-time workers more at the bottom. Women you know, tend to um, be concentrated more at the bottom because they're more likely to work part-time. And then we use what we've, we've referred to as a pachinko machine, which is essentially a Japanese arcade game. Um, you know, you could think of it as a slot machine, um, an arcade game that essentially allows you to, you know, the, where the little balls bounce around, you move around over time. And so you move between full and part-time work. And so the way in which we build part-time work into the model is that someone, say, who's at the 30th percentile of earnings, has probably spent a bunch of time working part-time, a bunch of time working full-time, and the net result is they end up with uh, you know, average earnings of X. We then, on top of that, build in career breaks. So the typical model or the model, the baseline model assumes that you start work at age 30 and you work until you're 67. Now, a lot's been made of this in the public debate, but the way to think about it is it's really a simplifying assumption. Most Australians are in work by 25. In fact, most are in, more than half are in work by about 23. That means that we're building implicitly about a five-year career break and then on top, we model scenarios where your career breaks longer. You take an extra 5, 10, 15 years out of the workforce. Okay, so many of us, most of us have started work by our mid-20s. But let me look at the other end of the life cycle. How long should my retirement income last? Because I hope you, you won't mind me saying that I think I'd feel more secure if it lasted till I was about 100, Brendan. Well, we should all be optimistic about how things are going to go. I think, I think the reality is that we model the average life expectancy of someone who's 30 today about what they're expecting to live to, uh, which is going to be 92 years. Now, the reason we do that is, is twofold. One, we're trying to model the typical working life and retirement path. So naturally, there's going to be a lot of variation around that. Um, and so you'll get quite a lot of people, half will live longer than the age 92. We're assuming that they draw down most, but not, not all of their assets by that time. So essentially when you get to retirement, you set aside 10% of your income or so your assets and that's put aside and that continues to compound. It continues to earn returns. And that's what's there to help you with a, a buffer for essentially what, what you're referring to is longevity risk, the risk that you outlive your savings. In addition, obviously, for most people, the pension is actually a form of longevity risk insurance. So even someone who's at the median, because the pension's benchmarked to wages, it grows throughout your retirement. Now, something we've talked about a lot on this podcast before, but not for a little while, we haven't actually done a super podcast for a while, is that spending tends to decline as you get older. Jonathan, you've looked into this, I think. Tell me a bit more because Brendan's not allowing me to live to 100, but he is a, he's giving me 92 years. Well, I, I, I mean, I think what Brendan's saying is if you live past 92, you'll be doing pretty well as, as well. Um, 
we we did a lot of analysis about um, how people spend as they age, but probably the most important thing for listeners at home to do is to look at their parents and their grandparents and the people in their lives that are into retirement and into their 70s and 80s and have a think about their spending. I know my granddad has the same furniture he had 30 years ago um, and he, he certainly doesn't go on as many trips as he once did. We, what we found in our research to back up this intuition is that as people age, they tend to spend more, or they tend to spend less on leisure activities, transport, um, the sorts of things that younger people might spend money on. And it's not because they run out of money, because our generation of older people is, has about the same amount of money they had when they retired on average. Um, they're, they're keeping their nest egg and they're just choosing not to spend as much. So, Brendan, it strikes me that reading your submission, listening to Jonathan, listening to you now, it strikes me that this is actually quite a good news story. Your modelling, your research, your submission suggests to me that most of us are going to be reasonably financially secure in retirement. That's right. So as long as you own your own house, you should probably be pretty good. So the system as it stands, as Jonathan mentioned earlier, for retirees today, they're doing pretty well. They're more financially satisfied than other cohorts in society. They're net savers. Um, you know, they're certainly under less financial stress. And that accords with what we're modeling for retirees going forward or projecting for retirees going forward, which is essentially uh, that they'll replace their pre-retirement living standards. In fact, in most cases, they'll more than replace them. Um, and so the system essentially is doing its job. Super, compulsory super is very effective. It helps people to save when they otherwise wouldn't and it's materially lifted retirement incomes. We'll go further into compulsory super shortly, but beyond that good news, there's a smaller element of bad news, isn't there, Brendan? That is, there is an, uh, 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 an identifiable minority of Australians for whom the retirement income system is not working. That's right. So if you're renting in retirement or it looks like you will be renting in retirement, then chances are you're going to, you may struggle. Uh, so renters obviously tend to be uh, lower income than homeowners. They tend to accumulate a lot less wealth. But beyond that, if you're renting and then you're spending 30% of your income and therefore spending 30% of your income or more on housing, that really stretches you if you're on the age pension. So we see that today, that rates of poverty and financial stress amongst renters in retirement are very high, uh, particularly if you're living alone. Um, and you see this more and more where as fewer Australians can expect to own their own home, so home ownership rates are falling particularly fast amongst younger, poor Australians, essentially the bottom 40%, then you're going to see a growing number of Australians that reach retirement without owning a house and they're going to have to have money set aside in retirement to help them. Um, and if they're on the whole probably not saving enough now or not being supported enough, um, and therefore, you know, we're looking down the barrel at a, at a, a rising um, underclass of Australians that reach retirement rent as renters and they're really going to struggle. Jonathan, a rising underclass of Australians in retirement. You've got some specific recommendations to help tackle that problem. That's right. That's right, Paul. And the, the first two things that um, are real no-brainers is rent assistance and new start. They've both been flat for around 20 years, but 
Australia has been growing um, and it, it's becoming more and more clear as time goes on that the amount people get in Newstart and rent assistance is not enough and it's getting further and further away from what is a reasonable amount to live on. And I say Newstart because there's a growing number of people who are in their late 50s and early 60s and a generation ago they might have been able to rely on the disability support pension to sort of bridge them to retirement but the gates have shut on the disability support pension for a lot of those people. Um, the, the rules of eligibility have changed so that more and more people are finding themselves on Newstart instead. And what they're finding is that it's not the new start it used to be. Um, so many people have said new start needs to increase by $75 a week in order to compensate that for that. And we think that it should go up by at least that amount. Um, and we know that being on new start is, is tough, um, but being on new start and being a renter is the toughest situation you can find yourself in. Um, we know that when we look at rates of financial stress, renters are really doing it tough and yet rent assistance hasn't gone up. Um, rents have gone up about 60% in the last 20 years um, and we think that rent assistance needs to go up by about 40% just to bring it in line with what's happened in Australia over the last 20 years with rents. Okay, so a couple of very specific uh, minimal requirements are... Um uh, $75 a week extra for new start, 40% increase in rent assistance. Brendan, you've got some other recommendations, including uh, changing the taper rate on the age pension means test. First of all, what is the taper rate? Secondly, why should it change? So the taper rate is essentially the rate at which the pension is withdrawn as you have either more income and assets. And the, the taper rate that's really strict at the moment is the assets test. So it's essentially for every $1,000 of assets that you have, you lose $78 a year in pension. Now that's implicit, that's like saying that in order to be as well off, you have to have an implicit rate of return on your assets of 7.8%, which is really high. So what it's meaning is that Australians are being penalized for saving um, so you can put aside $1,000 at age 40 and get back less over the course of your retirement, even if you draw down on those assets, um, than if you didn't save the money in the first place. So that does strike us as being a little bit unfair. And so what we've recommended is that you essentially reduce that taper rate down by to a degree. Uh, it'll cost you about $750 million to do that. And what it will do is it will essentially deliver high retirement incomes to, you know, essentially middle income Australians because something that's not really well appreciated is that most Australians will be on the part pension in future. The thresholds for getting the pension for the eligibility thresholds for the income and assets tests are only indexed to inflation, uh, whereas obviously incomes grow with wages. And that means that even someone who's a full-time minimum wage earner for 37 years, when they retire they'll start on a part pension, whereas today they're definitely receiving the full pension. So it's going to matter a lot to that cohort. The reason why we think this is also a good idea is it extends the, the benefits the pension provides, longevity risk insurance, risk against, you know, if you use a bad return, sequencing risk, all these risks that retirees face, it extends that further up the income distribution uh, in a way that helps insulate or deliver on the promise of the retirement income system, even to middle and high income earners. 
Now we're getting to a couple of uh, more controversial propositions, Brendan, including a suggestion that we change the way the family home is assessed when the age pension assets test is applied. What are you talking about here? Well, in the words of Paul Keating, when he got on the 7.30 report, he suggested that Grattan wanted Australians to eat their house. And Paul's known for particularly colourful rhetoric and definitely cutting through, but essentially, in a sense, he's right. What we're talking about here is, at the moment, the home is not included in the assets test to a significant degree. So only the first $200,000 is included and the rest of it's exempt. So you can be in a $2 million home in Turak and you know if you don't have any other money, you'll get the pension. And if you are in a $200,000 home you know, in Bendigo, uh, you'll get the same pension. Now, that doesn't strike us as being particularly fair or equitable. Um, and it's probably not that all that sustainable in a world when uh, home ownership is falling and there's a rising divide between these two groups. So instead, what we think you should do is include, say, anything above the first $500,000 of the value of the home in the assets test. Um, so flip it around. Uh, that'll have the effect of making some low income but high asset or asset rich households are no longer eligible for the pension. We don't want to kick anyone out of their homes. You can definitely stay where you are. But what we would be doing is essentially you'd be using the government's pension loan scheme to borrow the pension uh, and have it accrue as a debt against the house. And then essentially when you when you uh, move out of that house, uh, the debt settled. It wouldn't be that different from HEX. It's really HEX for housing. And so that allows you to stay in the house but we're getting a fairer distribution of the benefits of the age pension across the population because at the moment, something like $6 billion a year of pension payments goes to those with homes worth more than a million dollars. And that doesn't strike us as being the right way to go, particularly when rent assistance on the other side of the ledger for renters is so inadequate. You've also used the submission to the Retirement Incomes Review to reiterate a pretty controversial Grattan proposition regarding compulsory super. At the moment, compulsory super is 9.5% of wages. It is legislated by the Federal Parliament to increase to 12% by 2025. You are recommending that that increase be unwound. Why are you doing that? Well, Paul, I actually don't think it's that controversial, or at least it shouldn't be. So if you look at who else is in the debate suggesting compulsory super shouldn't increase, there's certainly ACOS, the Australian Council of Social Services. The Henry Tax Review suggested we shouldn't have increased beyond 9%. We're currently at 95 and legislated to go to 12 And it was, in fact, the then Labor government's response to the Henry Tax Review uh, that saw them increase it to 12 or pledged to increase it to 12 um, and there's also been some research by others, some academics at ANU and others that suggest that maybe a high compulsory super rate isn't the right way to go. But the essential principle here, and this is why I don't think it's controversial, is that compulsory super does what it says on the tin. It compels people to save. And the principle should be that you compel people to save up until the point where they're likely to have the same living standing in retirement than what they are beforehand. And at that point, you should stop. Uh, the reason being that it's pretty hard to unwind that compulsion. So if you force me to save 15 or 20% of my income and I'll have a much higher living standard in retirement than beforehand, it's kind of hard for me to adjust what else I do to then be able to have more consumption during my working life unless I want to take out some whopping big debts, which is actually one of the things that people are. some people probably are doing. I certainly look at my own circumstances and think, well, if I want to buy a nice house, maybe I will use a little bit of my super at retirement to pay it off. And that's 
not actually that irrational a thing to do. Um, the other reasons why we don't think compulsory super needs to rise are that, you know, it's often claimed that it's going to help the budget, but it's actually not true. So if you raise compulsory super to 12%, that's an extra $2 billion in, um, in revenue the government, the Treasury foregoes in money that was, would otherwise have been taxed at full rates of personal income tax as wages. Instead, it's taxed um, at concessional rates and super. And that $2 billion vastly outweighs the amount of pension savings you're going to get because that's obviously one of the objectives or the rationale to get pension savings down the track. That won't happen for a long time if at all. In fact, on some of the modelling, you may not see the cost of high compulsory super exceed the pension savings year on year until about 2100. And then obviously, I think in a world of low wages growth, I think it does sharpen the trade-off. We should always be thinking about these policies in terms of their long-term impacts. We shouldn't be thinking about it in terms of what's it going to do to wages in this one year. But in a world where wages aren't growing, you are going to feel the effects more which is to say that when Grattan's done work on this before, um, we had a podcast a few weeks ago in our, for our paper, uh, No Free Lunch, we find that compulsory super, high compulsory super, ultimately comes from wages. So if you increase super, wages will grow more slowly than they would otherwise. Uh, we find 80% of it's passed through over the course of the two to three years uh, and more in the long term. And I think it's really important to emphasize we can't rule out the fact that the trade-off is in fact one for one. We just can't see it in the data that we have um, and if you don't, if, if if you don't want to take our word for it, the Reserve Bank has come out and suggested that eighty percent of super comes from wages over a similar time frame. So they're in fact forecasting lower wages growth next year than they otherwise would if super wasn't rising. And you've you've mentioned the tax breaks that apply to superannuation contributions. You want to adjust them. They've been adjusted quite a bit recently, have they not? What's the rationale for a further winding back of superannuation tax breaks? Well, I think the basic principle is that you should only provide, be providing the tax breaks uh, that are consistent with the purposes of super. And so if the purpose of super is to provide income in retirement to supplement or substitute for the age pension, which is the one the government's put on the table, uh, then you really shouldn't implicitly be providing tax breaks to those that are never going to get any age pension. Now, half the tax breaks in the system go to the top 20% of income earners. Uh, most of those people will not ever get the pension and they're tending to already have more than enough resources to fund their own retirement. So we think that it's about $35 billion a year in tax breaks and, and where this is when we're accounting for the kind of double counting that people often claim that you, you should be very careful in how you treat those numbers. So we're doing that and we find it's about $35 billion a year. It's 2% of GDP, it's a lot of money. We think you could probably strip about $4 billion a year out of it pretty easily uh, in a way that wouldn't actually hurt the incomes of middle-income earners at all because you'd be stripping out some of the tax breaks going to those with very high balances uh, and very high incomes that it appears on the numbers are using this for tax planning purposes rather than legitimate retirement savings. And the last of the particular propositions that I wanted to touch on, Brendan, relates to the pension age. Now, you are suggesting at least consideration of a higher pension age in Australia. How high and why? Well, I think, first of all, we're thinking about retirement ages. Uh, so both the rate at which, the age at which you can access the pension and the rate at age at which you can access your superannuation, which is called the preservation age. Now, populations are aging around the world and in Australia. Um, that means more years in which uh, people are eligible, for, otherwise eligible for the age pension. Um, and 
what we're essentially saying is we should think about the costs and benefits of that. So should we allow people uh, or require people to work a little bit longer? Uh, certainly, we've increased the pension age from 65 to 67 under Labor. Um, it was scheduled or at least planned to go to 70 um, under the under the coalition government and that Scott Morrison walked that commitment back um, when he took office. Um, and so at the moment, it's going to go to 67. And it's one of those things that would actually make a big difference to the economy, a big difference to GDP and budget balances. And one of the ways which if we are worried about the sustainability of the system at a time when the population's ageing and the budget's under pressure, it's worth thinking about. The one that I would think that that is much more of a of a of a lay down misery is essentially increasing the preservation age. So it's currently sixty. There's no reason why it should be seven years less than the age pension. So you certainly should be thinking about raising it by a couple of years at least. And the Productivity Commission suggested uh, back in 2015 that you could raise it. They didn't they didn't recommend this, but they run a scenario where you raise it to sixty five. And improves the budget balance by about $7 billion a year, largely because you're getting rid of some of those tax breaks. Because as soon as you get to preservation age, your super earnings are tax-free for the rest of your life. And that's probably not sustainable and not equitable in a world where younger Australians are having to pay for the costs of, of, of these benefits to older Australians uh, at the same time as older Australians are taking themselves out of the tax system. So, Brendan, sum up for me. I want you to imagine that your submission to this review is so warmly received that government embraces your plan in its entirety. So we're now in a world where all these recommendations we've been talking about have been implemented. Describe for me how retirement would be different for Australians. The main difference would be that all Australians would be able to look forward to a comfortable retirement. That is to say they would not be in poverty, even if they're a renter, and they would be replacing at least 70% of their pre-retirement income, so they'd be as well off in retirement as what they were beforehand. And that is the objective. That is what we're aiming for. I think there's a tendency in this debate to say that you shouldn't change retirement income policy because it'll reduce confidence in the system or it's unfair because it's retrospective. Yet some of the changes we've made to retirement income, and some have said that we shouldn't, we should only change retirement income policy, say, with every intergenerational report. Yet some, most of the recent changes we've made to super, for example, to rein in the tax breaks in 2016, to get rid of multiple duplicate accounts and remove unnecessary insurance have clearly made the system better. And I think it would be very hard to argue that those things shouldn't have taken place. The bigger threat to confidence in the system is, I think, probably the 2006 reforms where we essentially made superannuation far too generous and we've spent a decade slowly chipping away at them. So the priority for the review and for policymakers is to think about the system holistically, work out what needs to change, although the review won't make recommendations, by the way, but it will make findings about how the different parts of the system are functioning, is is my suspicion. If change is desirable in the long term, it should be done now. Get the system on a sustainable footing, on on a fair footing and giving adequate retirement incomes and then, you know, we'll all be a lot happier. Thank you, Brendan. And thank you, Jonathan, for your really quite penetrating work on this submission and for your insights and your expertise today. And thank you to you, our listeners. If you'd like to read Brendan and Jonathan's submission to the Retirement Incomes Review, 
or indeed any of Grattan's reports and articles on superannuation and retirement incomes more broadly, go to our website, grattan.edu.au. It's all there, live and free. You can stay up to date with all of Grattan's news and events by following us on Twitter at Grattan Inst or on Facebook, Grattan Institute. And if you found this podcast valuable, then please help your friends to find it by heading over to iTunes or Spotify and leaving us a rating or review. Thanks for listening.